On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil, prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. 
I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even when he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Elashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they, they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for the contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Lydia. Smashed it. I'm going to get you to read every week now. Um, yeah, we wanted to read the whole last chapter because I feel like we're at the end of the book. And I feel like as well, you kinda, sometimes some of these chapters, you kind of need to read the whole thing to get a grasp of all that has gone on before. Um, America, right? I feel like I start every sermon with America. But America, right, it's always in the news. It's usually for Trump, who's just one big walking news story uh, all of himself. But right now, there have been other stories in the American press, right? So don't let, don't let Trump himself fool you. There's been other big news stories, right? So if you are into American sports, you will know that the big story in American sports over the last number of months has been the future of LeBron James, right? He is the best basketball player in the league. Uh, he is the big name draw in... The league, he had himself in a position where he was in a free agency. So he kind of got to the end of his contract. He bought himself his contract. So basically he could do what he wanted, right? And this was like the big story. Even when his team gets swept in the NBA finals, which means they don't win a single game, right? They get hammered in the finals. The interviews after the game, some of them to the winning team where, what do you think is going to happen with LeBron James, right? That's how big a story this was in America over the last little while. So he decides what he's going to do, okay? He's going to join the LA Lakers in a deal worth $154 million for four years. Wowzers, right? So he's joined the LA Lakers. There's lots of reaction in America right now. Cleveland was like his home state. He's moved from there to LA, which is like one of the, you know, if, any, if, if you didn't know anything about football and somebody asked you who you supported, you'd probably say United or Liverpool, right? LA Lakers are kind of like that in America. They're like one of the big franchises, okay? So there's been lots of reaction. However, potentially the best reaction came from one other big star who already plays sport in LA, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. When asked what he thought about the transfer to LA, he said this, now LA has a god and a king. Zlatan welcomes LeBron. That's what he had to say, right? Which got me kind of thinking about the words of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, right? He's got lots to say about himself along the way, okay? So when he got engaged to his girlfriend, right, they asked him what he got her as a gift, and he said this, what do you mean present? She got Zlatan, right? (laughs) As a teenager, when he was offered a trial by Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, okay, right? So this is a big deal for a teenager. This is what he said, Zlatan doesn't do auditions, right? And when he left PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, for United, he said this, I came like a king, I left like a legend, right? Who says things like this, right? 
Well, the answer is we all say things, maybe not quite like Zlatan, but we all say things like this at points in our lives, don't we? We all like to paint a picture of ourselves in certain circles at certain times, don't we? We're all capable of Zlatan-like behavior at points in our lives. That's why four-fifths of all CVs contain embellishment. It's why every, uh, it's why we all watch The Apprentice, right? So we can watch people who think they're bigger than themselves eventually fail and fall in front of the whole of the UK public, right? It's why hashtag humble brag even exists because we like to build ourselves up with like a humble brag, don't we? It's like a thing. And lots of us tend toward putting out a better version of ourselves than the reality, don't we? Lots of us have moments in our lives when we tend to paint a picture of ourselves that's a little bit better than reality. I mean, what else is Instagram if not that, right? Of course, there are other groups of people, right? My wife being one, the sort of person who likes to put forward the worst bits before you encounter the best, right? So you'll come into the house and she'll have like cleaned the whole house. And before I've even made it into the living room, she's like, don't go into the kitchen, there's a massive mess. And I'm like, I wouldn't even have thought about the kitchen until now. Or those sorts of people that you come forward and before you even get to say, you look lovely, they're like, I'm sweating. You're like, that, I mean, that isn't the topic of conversation. That's fine. You look lovely. Or, you know, points out, don't even look at the massive spot on my face. I mean, I wasn't going to talk about the spot on your face, but now that you've mentioned it, right? There's some people here, it's like you've got to wade through their worst to get to their best as well, isn't there? We all like to paint a picture or a version of ourselves that we want people to see. And it's why I find this passage of the Bible that we've just read, I find it so wonderful, really, because of how wonderfully real and refreshingly honest it is. What am I getting at? Well, I'm getting at the fact that Nehemiah, right, who's the author of this book, he's the person whose story this whole book has revolved around that we've been digging into over the last kind of 12 weeks or so. You would be pretty, it's pretty obvious that in that time, Nehemiah's leadership did an awful lot of good, didn't it? You can see an awful lot of good that he did for those people, for that city. He's uprooted and left all that he knew in Persia to come to Jerusalem and take part in the project of God in restoring the city of God. He's rebuilt the walls. He's refocused the people on who they were meant to be through teaching, celebration, dedication, and worship. Like he's done a lot of good stuff, right? It's an incredible story. And it's so difficult to have read it and not been impressed with all he's achieved. That's what I'm getting at earlier on when I say, I really hope when I meet him, he's everything that I think he's going to be, right? And we read the story so far, and we think that it's probably safe to imagine that the end of the story is good, don't we? If you've read 12 chapters, if you'd signed off there, you're like, yeah, that probably seemed fair, wouldn't it? This guy that gave himself to this thing, everything he had worked so hard. He was all in, got people around this thing God was trying to do with the city and with the people. It would be quite easy to sign off at chapter 12. Why did he include the 13th chapter is the question in my mind whenever I read it. He's the author, right? He's the one putting out the story or the version of himself. And it's not as if this 13th chapter kind of plays off that well for him, does it? He's the leader and look at the state of the people all over again. But yet it's there. Why doesn't he just cut it out? Why don't we only ever get Nehemiah with 12 chapters? But we don't. We get Nehemiah with 13 chapters. 
And we're in this final chapter of the book. We're right back into the moral failure of the people. Nehemiah returns to Persia. It says in the chapter, we don't know for how long he's went. He had been there for quite a considerable amount of time. So then whenever he went back, we're assuming he was there for a reasonable amount of time as well. So he goes back and while he's gone, it's like the people of God just drop back into stuff that they should have left behind a long time ago. And I can't help but feel why was it even included? And then I kind of come back to it and I think it's included in the book because it's true. It's included in the book because it happened. It's included in the book because it's real. And it's an honest reflection of those people. And if we're honest, it's a pretty honest reflection of our lives too, isn't it? Good beginnings are no guarantee of happy endings, are they? Things that start well are no guarantee of things that will end well. And the Bible just refuses to present us with this romantic portrait of life, doesn't it? It just refuses to do it. Things do not always develop as we thought or as we hope in the story of God. And again and again, that's the picture of the Bible. So Abraham can attempt to deceive. Jacob cheats, lies, and steals. Moses loses his temper, kills somebody. David commits adultery. Peter, the rock, lies. It's the picture of the Bible, isn't it? The good beginnings are no guarantee of happy endings. Time and again, just because it starts well, it doesn't mean that it ends well. And even though so much good has been done, even though they were living in a city that was truly restored, even though the people of God have known celebration in a way that they hadn't known for centuries, even though God had been so faithful, they were feeling, and they desperately needed leadership. They were feeling all over again. And they desperately needed leadership. The problem was that what they got was Eliashib. That's what they got. And as you've read today, that didn't go so well. It went badly, in fact. So back into the story comes Nehemiah again about halfway through this chapter. And even now, 13 chapters in, he's still showing us the leadership blueprint. And that's the title of today's talk. We kind of resisted along the way making uh, this series that we've done in Nehemiah really a leadership series. When we met to kind of talk about the content, we really didn't want to do this as like a study in leadership, right? He is a leader. But we wanted it to be so much more than that. We wanted it to speak to everybody's everyday because he was an everyday sort of leader as well. But today's one is, is, is about his leadership. And even though he is a leader, it's not just about that. That's why we're calling it the leadership blueprint. What's going on behind the thing that we're seeing out front? And what do we learn from it? Well, there's just two things today, really, that I think we're looking at. And we're learning today that leadership involves being aware of the things that we do and the things that we don't. It involves being aware of the things we do and the things we don't. The first thing is the thing that we do. Uh, those of you that are married today will know of the gauntlet that we all run when it comes to in-laws, right? You will know of the gauntlet that's there. Some of us marry people and you get in-laws who are an absolute dream, everything's easy, and then other people marry in-laws and they're an absolute nightmare, right? Um, I feel it's this, it's this kind of bizarre mix of traditions and values and lifestyles and experiences and they all kind of come to clash with your values and lifestyles and experiences and what you're trying to do and all of a sudden there's this like influence thing and you're like, well, I didn't really want it but now I've got it and what do I do with it and how do I honor these people and I mean, they gave me their daughter and that's great and you know, what do you do with it, right? It's tough, isn't it? 
I feel actually at this point I probably need to repent uh, because we were out for dinner with some people from church a couple of weeks ago and while we were eating dinner they were like, Dave, I just think your in-laws sound hilarious, right? I mean, the way you talk about them every week, I am desperate to meet them. They sound amazing. It's hilarious. So I feel like I need to repent. I got some of the good ones, right? My in-laws are amazing, epic people, all right, all of that. Why am I telling you this, right? I'm telling you this because there's kind of an in-law dynamic going on at the first bit in this story, all right? There's like an in-law dynamic going on. You see, in Nehemiah's absence, Elashib has been in charge. And this is what we read in verse 4. Before this, Elashib the priest had been in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And that phrase, closely associated with, right? It doesn't mean that he's some like work colleague, right? That's not the language that we're getting at here. Closely associated is, exact, is the exact same term that was used in Ruth 2 to describe the relationship of Boaz to Naomi and Ruth. In other words, it means that he was probably linked to Tobiah's family in some way in marriage. He was probably linked in marriage in some way to Tobiah's family. That's the connection here that's going on. And the problem with this is what happens next. You see, we already have heard a little bit about Tobiah in this story already. And everything that we know to now is that he's a meddler, right? We know he's one of these people that just kind of wants to get involved and make things awkward and make them difficult and kind of, you know, he wants to get his own way. He's probably quite used to getting his own way. And so he's almost certainly used that influence, that kind of family, in-law, weird married-in dynamic to come to have some influence in Eliashib's leadership because this is what we read. And he had provided him with a large room, right? Who do you give a large room to in the temple? A large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain and new wine olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions of the priests. Now, this was a problem. This was an issue. You see, there was history here. For starters, Tobiah was an Ammonite, right? And, uh, and that meant that he shouldn't even have been admitted to the temple, let alone given this like big space in the middle of the temple, right? He shouldn't ever have been in it. I know this might seem off, right? I know maybe as we started the passage today, you were like, oof, right, that's a bit tough as we read that stuff about Ammonites and Moabites. And this isn't some sort of license to exclude other people from the message of Jesus, right? This is not some like Donald Trump build a wall around it thing going on. That's not what's happening here. This isn't some thing that reinforces our own sectarianism and bigotry and nationalism and all of that to keep other people out from the message of Jesus. That's not what is going on here. The Bible time and time again makes it so totally clear that the message of Jesus is without border or distinction. It's for everyone. Jesus' invitation was for all who are thirsty. But at this moment in history, there had been a past, right? So there'd been a past with the Ammonites and the Moabites. And the first couple of verses in chapter 13 let us in on some of it. You see, the Ammonites had refused uh, to let the people of God buy food and water. Just let them buy it. We're not even asking about giving it to them. They wouldn't even let them buy food and water as they made the long and exhausting journey to Canaan. They wouldn't let them get food and water. They desperately needed supplies, and they said no. Like a migrant group of people coming in through their country in need of help. And they said no. And the second group, the Moabites, well, they weren't even further there. They hired Balaam to call down curses on the people of God. So, I mean, they had been pretty proactive. If these guys had been inactive, they'd been proactive in how they'd stood against the people of God at a time. So there was history, right? 
But also this was Tobiah, the same Tobiah in chapters like 1 through 5, who you really cannot stand because at every step along the way, he did everything he could to make things difficult and oppose and insult and even play his part in raising up an army to try and intimidate the project of God. He'd been completely opposed to the plan of God for Jerusalem. He was dangerous. He wasn't part of the plan for moving forward. And giving the space to Tobiah had meant that there was no space for the stuff that was meant to be in the room. There was no space for what the room was actually intended for because his stuff now occupied the space. There was no room for food and offerings and that was needed to sustain the Levites and those who led worship in the temple in that time. That's what it says. Elisha was in a position of leadership, but he chose damaging relationships and he didn't take care of the privileged position he held. He traded holy privilege for unholy purpose. He traded the holy privilege of being in charge of all of that stuff for unholy purpose. And the results were devastating, right? As that chapter goes on, you can kind of see what happens next because there was no supply and there was no provision for the Levites who were responsible for the teaching. If you remember from some of the other chapters, they kind of delivered the teaching, kind of did a little like small group thing after the word of God was read. They broke people into groups and they explained it and, and they helped them understand all that was being said and the law of Moses, right? So they did the teaching. And the musicians who were responsible for the leading of worship, none of of them were able to continue in their positions either. They had all left. They left. The people who taught and the people who led worship, they left because there was no way to sustain them in Jerusalem anymore. And there's no real clarity on whether the tithes and the food and all of that sort of stuff. There's no real clarity on whether it was like a chicken and egg thing, right? So we don't know what came first. We don't know if the tithes kind of dried up and so the room was vacant and so he gave it to Tobiah or if it was the other way around, Tobiah took the room so there was nowhere to put it so people stopped giving. We don't know. There's no clarity on which way around that happened. But one way or another... Clearly the people of God have moved from being a people of generosity, tithe and provision for others to being a greedy people. They went from being a people who supported and gave everything that these people needed to do their ministry to people who no longer had a ministry because there wasn't anything there to provide for them. And God's people without any teaching direction or people to lead them in worship were a long, long way short of all that God had meant for them to be. Greedy instead of generous, abusing privileged positions of the house, losing sight of the God they were meant to have set their hearts toward. It's no wonder Nehemiah said, why is the house of God neglected? And that might sound, you know, when you're reading it now or or you're reading it in isolation, uh, you know, it may sound kind of harsh. But the reality is you've read, lots of you will have read the story tonight. If you haven't, go back and read it tonight and see all of the journey of what God had done. I mean, the chapter before was one full of celebration, dedication. These people were like setting their hearts and committing themselves to the work of God in this new city. And then like you turn the page to the next chapter and you're like, oh my goodness, what happened here? And when it comes to our own lives, and especially when it comes to leadership, so often we get it wrong because of the things we do, don't we? We get it wrong because of stuff we do. Elashib had done something. He'd had position. He gave a room to somebody that he shouldn't. He had done something. He'd just given up part of the temple to Tobiah, and pretty soon the people of God had just wandered off. And that's really the same for our own lives, isn't it? 
When it comes to the stuff that we do, so often we never mean to end up where we are doing what we're doing, whether it's words that all of a sudden become a normal part of our vocabulary or things we look at or things we do or attitudes that we hold towards people or groups of people or whatever or just how much Love Island has now taken over our lives, right? You didn't mean to get there, but you started with an action and one action led to another action to another action to another action to another action and pretty soon you've just wandered off we just wander off you know in the new testament letters called the epistles at one time the name of demas uh, could be mentioned in the same sentences as that of luke right and uh, they were both reliable godly men at one stage and so therefore you find paul writing things like this from prison our dear friend luke the doctor and demas send greetings right he's in prison they've come to see him He's able to write that because they're there. But towards the end of the Apostle Paul's life, the two names appear again at the end of one of his other letters. But at this time, it's a very different story. Luke is still by his side. But Demas, this is what it says, only Luke is with me. But Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. People change, don't they? We lose sight of who we're meant to be and we do wrong. And one wrong nearly always leads to another, doesn't it? Like if you take lying, for example. The second you tell one lie, it's almost as if you need to tell two lies to get your way around the first lie that you told. And all of a sudden, there's a web spun, and it's way harder to maintain the story that you put out at the start, isn't it? Nearly always one wrong leads to another, and we just wander off. And what does Nehemiah do? This is what it says from verse 7 onwards. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. We got to get it out. You just had to get it out. All the stuff, throw it out, purify the room, get that which is meant for it back into the room. He had to get it out. We have to take action. We have to do something about it. And the leadership blueprint looks like taking action and reclaiming the space where God belongs in our lives. Nehemiah was able to do what he did and be a leader of the caliber that he was because he was able to take back the stuff and make space for God in his lives. And Nehemiah's actions remind me so much of how Jesus, whenever he was in the temple, seeing all of the trading and the wrong and the stuff that was going on in the temple at that time, overturns the tables, whips people, just kicks them out of the temple, right? We gotta get it out. And the handing over of the temple to Tobiah is just only too relevant for our lives. We will all know the phrase, you know, my body is a temple. Usually it's used for people that go to the gym too often. But like, you know, we all know that phrase, right? We all know it, but, and it's like the biblical context for it as well. You know, my, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. All of that sort of train of thought, don't we? And Paul uses that language whenever he's talking about holiness to the Corinthian church, right? He uses temple language when he's talking about holiness, right? And it represents, uh, he would say to them, God does not live in temples built by hands and a whole series of other things. And he would use the language again and again and again. And this whole arc of Tobiah handing over the temple or of, of uh, Tobiah being handed over the temple represents how easily even imperceptibly damaging things begin to display as helpful, good things in our lives. Nehemiah had to purify the temple. 
And it's in you and in me that he lives. Just like in those days, it was in the temple where you found God, wasn't it? The temple was a big, massive part of their kind of religious life, wasn't it? But that's not necessarily the case now because it's in you and I that he lives. Paul told the Corinthian church that God's spirit resided in two places, a human body and a spiritual community. That's it. God's spirit lives in two places, a human body and a spiritual community. It's just us and the church. That's it. That's where God lives, us and the church. It's in us that he breathes, and we have to learn to keep the temple of our lives free from damaging things, from our time and attention being given over to things that don't belong, from our values being given over to things, other voices, when we give over holy space in our lives to other stuff. One commentator wrote this, Nehemiah was the first courageous hero to cleanse a temple, but he was not the last. We do things don't we? And things go awry when the things that we do take up the space that's meant for Jesus in our lives. And the leadership blueprint looks like taking it back. But secondly, it's not just about the stuff that we do. It's about the stuff that we don't, right? It's about the stuff that we don't do. Our lives start to lose sight of their purpose through things we do, but also through things that we don't do. Most of you from your childhood may well have had an experience of getting shouted at and eventually saying, I didn't do anything to what your parents say. Exactly. And that's the thing, isn't it? We can be as guilty of stuff by things we don't do as we can and by things we do do. And having dealt with how the temple was being run, Nehemiah then turns his attention to the Sabbath, right? From verse 15 onwards, this is what he said. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this? wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. They had lost sight of God and lost sight of the command to keep the Sabbath day holy. They just lost sight of it. And living in Northern Irish culture, right, that just kind of sounds like another, you've broken the rules, ticking off from a legalistic God, doesn't it? For lots of us that may have grown up in church or around church language, well, of course he said something about the Sabbath, right? Of course he did, because that's what it can feel like. But actually, it's about so much more than just the ticking off of a legalistic God. You see, the things we don't do can sometimes be just as damaging as the things we do. And when God entered into covenant with his people, right, he gave them visible signs to demonstrate his love for them and his commitment to them. So primarily he gave them a book, which was the law. He gave them a place, which was the tabernacle, which then became the temple, a ministry, priests and Levites to do the stuff. And then he gave them a place, a day, which was the Sabbath at the end of each week, a place to encounter God, a place to rest, a place to enjoy him. When Moses came down off that mountain all of those years ago and he wrote law unto stone, so many of the commandments would have made great sense to people who were not themselves followers of God at that time. I mean, somebody that comes down and says, right, don't steal, don't kill, don't covet somebody else's wife, you know, don't do all of that sort of stuff, don't commit adultery. The people around would have been going, yeah, that makes sense. We don't want this stuff either. 
It's like when lots of people sit down in alpha courses and there's like an atheist in your group and everyone's going, oh, the atheist, right? But the reality is atheists are nice people too, right? They don't want to kill people. They don't want to steal from you. They don't want to steal your wife. They're good people too. They want the same things so often. But when it came to Sabbath rest, they didn't get it. It was weird. All of the world around them would have looked at the list of commands, the, life, the things they were meant to be, and probably went, yeah, I get it. But as soon as it got to Sabbath rest, well, what's that about? It was weird. It wasn't normal for them. It wouldn't be something they'd do. And because it was one of the ways they were to connect with God, it became one of the ways that they were distinct. Because it was strange. Because it was unusual. Because nobody else did it. It was a unique rhythm in their lives. It was a witness to all the world of whose they were. It spoke far beyond just the day to rest. Their silence in the Sabbath spoke the loudest. Sabbath was about who they were and what if ours still could. What if our Sabbath still could. You know, when I was growing up, Sundays, um, Sundays meant that we weren't allowed to watch TV, except for, of course, the allowed songs of praise. And I don't know how. I don't know how. Last of the Summer Wine also snuck its way in. Like, how did that happen? How is Last of the Summer Wine somehow worthy? But anyway, old Compo and Cleggy, they were all right. So we were allowed to watch them too, right? So songs of praise and last of the summer went. It also meant we weren't allowed to do a huge amount of things. It meant no shopping, right? It meant we weren't allowed to go to other kids' birthday parties. It meant a whole series of things that it felt like we were missing out on when we were growing up in our house. But because of this, Sunday also meant endless hours in the garden in rain or shine. Sunday meant inviting the whole street into our garden to climb trees and play football matches and, you know, make those ice pops that you made yourself with dilute juice because you couldn't afford, like, 16 pear prick and porkies, right? Those things. Sunday meant time sat down with family around a dinner table. Sunday meant time that we actually talked. Sunday meant time that we read books together and we played games and we did all the things that kind of made us the family that we were. Sunday actually became a treasure. It wasn't about all the things that we couldn't do. Actually, because we had things that we couldn't do, there was a whole series of things that we did do. And they were infinitely more important than going shopping or going to the cinema or whatever else it was that we didn't do. And when I look at our lives, generally speaking, when I look at our lives, so hectic, so busy, the average person touches their smartphone 2,617 times every single day. 2,617 times. We're connected all the time. We have emails that never stop pinging, shops that never close, cities that never sleep, a world with stress and anxiety and burnout levels, the highest since kind of we started counting. We are exhausted, right? Exhausted. Culturally exhausted, personally exhausted, like deep down in our bones and in our soul exhausted, aren't we? And I wonder if this passage is a reminder to us to start to take back some Sabbath in our lives. I wonder actually if the Sabbath could be one of the things that we witness to the whole world about. I wonder if the Sabbath could be one of the things, just like for the people of Israel, it could be for us that it is a distinctive, it is a unique thing. It is a thing that speaks to all the world of whose we are. It doesn't matter what day it is for you. But time to rest, time to reconnect with who we are, time to reconnect with our relationship with Jesus, time to reconnect with family and friends, reconnect with the world that we're in. Remember what it is to be human.
which you will not find in the however many inches by however many inches phone of a smart screen of a smartphone. And we know that connection often means disconnection, don't we? We know that connection with something means disconnection. We had a wedding, actually, with a couple of people that have been coming to church during the week. And I was so reminded, you know, as I watched them make their vows, that connection with one another means disconnection from every other person that either of them may meet for the rest of their lives forever and ever and ever until they die, right? Connection, giving yourself to that person means disconnection from everyone else. And what if reconnecting with ourselves and Sabbath meant disconnecting from shopping, advertising, being told what we need, 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 right? What if reconnecting with family and friends meant turning off our phones or goodness knows leaving the house without our phones? What if reconnecting with the world that we're in meant disconnecting Netflix? What if reconnecting with Jesus meant disconnecting the other sounds in our lives even just for a moment? God says the Sabbath is to be holy. And yet as the son of the manse, I know that we, the church, don't particularly model rest that well, do we? We don't necessarily model it well. So maybe it's time we took back the holy ground, the Sabbath rest. You are not a robot, right? If no one's ever told you that, I'm glad I'm the first person. You're not a robot. It's not just input equals output. It's not just, you know, go, 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 recharge the batteries, go, go, go. You know, that's not who you are. You cannot just go and go without somehow, somewhere losing sight of all God has you for. That's not possible. You see, from the start of the God story to the very end, God's people were commanded to no rest in our lives. But what does that look like for you? Because I believe in our culture that this too might be our witness. And we lose sight of the blueprint for our lives through things we do, but also through things that we don't. We need to do something about the stuff that sits in the place where it doesn't belong, don't we? Like Nehemiah, you've got to get it out. You just got to get it out. You got to deal with it. And we need to make a space for Sabbath too. And even right at the end of this story, as we finish up today, Nehemiah is still showing us the way. You see, to him, spiritual distance was way, way, way more important than material need. From the first chapter to the last chapter, he was way more concerned about the spiritual lives of the people of God than he was about their material needs. And right the way through this story, we've seen it in challenge and trial and mockery and attack and celebration that he never lost sight of the blueprint, did he? I mean, just look at his prayers, right? If you get a chance uh, in the days that are ahead from here, just look at his prayers. Just read them again. Look at the way he talked to God. Look at the things that he asked for. Look at the expectation in his voice. Look at the pausing mid-sentence when he had a king in front of him and the opportunity of a lifetime. He stops and prays, even in the like second between the question and him giving an answer, right? Just look at the way that he prays. And I just love the one that he signs off this whole story with, right? Right at the end of chapter 13, this is what it says. Remember me with favor, my God. After all he did, right? After all the good, after all the courage, after all of the stuff, right? This is a city literally rebuilt from rubble, nothing there. He's made a place for God's people to be safe and thrive and do business and worship Jesus again. He's helped reform a people around godly values, around the temple, around being the people of God in the world at that time. Look at all that he did. So much Humility, remember me, God, remember me. Why? Because he never lost sight of whose 
he was. He just never lost sight of whose he was. And this last prayer reminds me of those words in Galatians, right? In Galatians 2, whenever it says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Intimate relationship. Personal relationship. So often in life, people will say, you know, don't make things personal. But actually, in the case of our relationship with God, actually, it is personal. And you need to make it personal. Martin Luther, a long time ago, one of the forefathers of the church, urged us to hold on to just how important it is that this is personal. This is what he said in talking about that passage in Galatians 2. For Christ, when he comes, is nothing else but joy and sweetness to a trembling and broken heart. As here Paul witnesses with this most sweet and comfortable title, which loved me and gave himself for me. Read therefore with great vehemency these words, me and for me, and so inwardly practice with yourself that you with a sure faith might conceive and print this me in your heart, not doubting, but that you are of the number of those to whom this me belongs. That you might imprint this me on your heart. You belong to him. And all of this blueprint story has been about a whole series of things. It's been about a city rebuilt. It's been about a people reformed and renewed. But actually, it was at the heart of it was a leader who knew whose he was. Confident in whose he was. Reliant on whose he was. Inspectant for the one who he belonged to, to show up again and again and again in constant communication with the one whose he was. This is a leader who knew who he belonged to. 